welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about cutscenes. These interstitials have long been used to communicate exposition, but is this the best method for storytelling in an interactive medium? To help me discuss cutscenes as a man who's going to have to defend Metal Gear Solid with his life, it's my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? You're damn right I will. I've got a I got a truck full of military weapons and a monkey that's addicted to cola over here to help me out with that. And and military battle droids that walk on two legs even though it's horribly inefficient. And they and they moo like cows. Wait, every time we talk about Metal Gear Solid, you reveal to me some piece of Metal Gear Solid lore I, I knew nothing about. You don't you Are don't remember that from Metal Gear Solid robots? 4? They just kind of like made like a like a like a mooing sound whenever whenever they were around. It was kind of unsettling, but also kind of dumb. Jared, the last Metal Gear Solid I played was Metal Gear Solid 2. Okay, well, then you have no bearing or opinion on this concept that we're talking about today, then. I mean, were they were the cows cool? I, I mean, the, as we talk about this more and more, cool. I certainly feel like I've missed out. I certainly feel like I've missed out on the Metal Gear Solid gun-selling monkey cow robot future that's awaiting us all. I mean, you've seen the things that Boston Dynamics has been putting out. I mean, we're not too far out from there. Now that you mention it, those robots, those robots do look like the Metal Gear robots. Yeah. And and also, I think Metal Gear Solid 2 predicted this this whole social media nightmare that we're now in, that we Dude, existence that we have. We're fucked. Kojima was right. We're doomed. We'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully this hopefully this episode redeems us a little bit. What are we, what are we talking about today? We're talking about cutscenes and we have a amazing guest to talk about cutscenes with He's a senior UI artist with NetherRealm Studios and host on the podcast, Someone Should Make This. Please welcome to the show, Danish Syed. Danish, welcome, man. How you doing? Hey, guys. I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. And I think Jared's going to have to defend Metal Gear 2 against 1 Uh-oh. because <laughs> I have some problems with Metal Gear. It's a perfect I, game. I, yeah. But, okay. When we landed on this episode topic, Metal Gear Solid was the first thing that jumped to my mind. And I know Jared loves Metal Gear, so I am... I am I'm honestly awaiting his defense of this of this game as we get into this. I have a real uh, love hate relationship with Metal Gear. I I love love so much of it and hate so much of it. It's just the most schizophrenic sort of like ah I don't know how to feel about this <laughs> uh, sort of game that I, there is out. I think I think that's I think even people who are true fans probably feel that way about the series. I would agree. It's a fever dream. <laughs> But Danish man, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, you and the work that you're doing. So you're a senior UI artist with NetherRealm. That's right. What 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 is that? Tell me what that is, because I know nothing about game design. Okay, so the uh, basically a senior UI artist. There's user interface can be split up into a lot of different things. It used to be the case where it was lumped together with UX, like UX and UI would be together. And I know when I started in the industry, I would do both of those, and UX being user experience, where it's like, okay, how do we want to block this out? How do we? How does the this game function? How do we present information to the player and make the game usable and clear and understandable? And then the UI art side of it was like sort of the style, stylistic, you know, presentation of it. Like, how does it look and what kind of emotions do we want to evoke through the art? And so I used to do both of that. And now we actually have a UX designer who's amazing and basically is a lifesaver. And so now I can focus on the art side of it. So it's basically, you know, the presentation of the game. When you turn on the game, what is the first thing you see? A lot of it is sort of the style of the game, the presentation, the mood setting, and then how easy is it to actually play and communicate to the player? That's kind of the gist of UI. 
whose job is it to replace all the C's with K's? <laughs> all right. Yeah. Who, I'm not, who okay. programs the robot? I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> I'm not going to get into it, but I will say that it is highly controversial in the studio which words get the C and which words get the K. Capit there capital are K controversial. Fights. There are fights oh, no. in the studio about it. It's actually like a minefield. <laughs> very highly political. It's very, yes. I've got a QA background, and I imagine there's like probably some QA employees that are like, son of a bitch, again? <laughs> is this supposed to be a K? I don't know. Is this... <laughs> yes, and the problem is there's, and people ask all the time, like, well, what are the rules? And that really is the big problem, is there are no rules. It is completely... <laughs> Chaos with the K. Um, <laughs> actually, chaos. Naturally. So I would argue, I would argue, chaos should not be with the K, because it's a KH. Sometimes that doesn't really work. Uh, I'm going to give you my pitch on what should be C and what should be K. This is not by any means speaking for the studio, but in my personal opinion, proper nouns K is fine. Um, if you see the word and it kind of breaks your brain a little bit to like, what is that actually even saying? Cost example, C O S T. Oh yeah. If you saw if you saw K O S T, you'd have to actually read it like more than once to know what word that even is trying to be because it just looks weird. Yeah. So that's my personal kind of litmus test. I'm uh, on board. You can totally totally carried away with it, and uh, I personally again err on the side of like let's save it for the special words. Let's save it so when we do use it, it's cooler. Let's not just sort of dilute it by putting it everywhere. That's my take on it. That's a way more serious this answer real, than I was like, expecting, but I really I know, appreciate wow. it. Oh, yeah. It is, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> so how, how did you get into being a UI artist? Well, I guess I guess where, where did you start with NetherRealm, and then how did you work your way into being the senior UI artist there? So my path is really circuitous. Like It's uh, kind of weird. I, I went to school for computer science, and then after that, I got a systems administrator job, worked there for a few years, and I went, eventually went back to school to get an art degree and I got an animation degree and I just knew I wanted to do something. And I, I was so split between like TV, like movies and games. Like those are my movies and games are like my two passions. And my whole life growing up, I would always like, Oh, I want to make movies. Oh, I want to make games, you know, back and forth. Eventually my first job in the industry was animation for creating movie title sequences or TV show title sequences. And that was amazing. And after a couple of years of that, then the studio I was with started to transition away from that into sort of like ad agency stuff. And so it wasn't the cool movie title stuff that we were doing anymore. So I got an opportunity to start as a technical artist at uh, NetherRealm. And when I first saw the opportunity, it was for WB Games uh, because they had just been bought out. WB had just bought out uh, Midway back in uh, 20, 2008, maybe. And um, so WB Games, I didn't put two and two together and I always thought oh WB Games that's Scribblenauts those, those guys are awesome I love Scribblenauts let me talk to these guys and then I ended up talking to uh, the art director and I was like so what's your next game and I was thinking oh you know Scribblenauts 2 he's like oh no we're rebooting Mortal Kombat and I was like and then suddenly it was like oh my god and all of it kind of came flooding back and I realized I was talking to Midway Games you know like the guys mm, who made yeah. Mortal Kombat and so that was Legends. Amazing. Yeah, I started out as a uh, technical artist because I had a pro computer science background, I had an art background, and I was able to like interface between the kind of graphics engine guys and the art team and create assets for them and debug problems and stuff. So that's kind of how I started. And then I kind of moved into UI. Just I don't really know why <laughs> randomly, I guess. They didn't know. 
where to put me because they I, they liked the stuff I was doing and they wanted to give me a, a role. But uh, they's like, I think you know they thought it'd be a good fit, and it was. Well, and I, I want to say uh, congratulations on launching Mortal Kombat 11. The game looks absolutely incredible, and I've been following some of the some of the initial tournament stuff. I'm really looking forward to when all that stuff gets into to full swing. But what happens when what happens to like your position when you release a game like Mortal Kombat 11? Like, are you are you still working on Mortal Kombat 11, or have you already started working on the the next thing? No, we're still working on it. Like, uh, we have a lot of stuff planned. Um, that's pretty much all I can say. But yeah, we we definitely like if you look at our past games, you know, Injustice 2 mm-hmm. and MKX, like we keep the game going for a while and. I think this game will probably last longer than any game we've done previously. That's, ex- that's so exciting still, to hear. Yeah, there's tons of stuff coming. I, I hope I'm not like uh, stepping on any toes here. Injustice 2 was an amazing game to watch. I, I really enjoyed watching the uh, like a lot of the tournaments and stuff. But it definitely felt like there was a point where the I don't know, like the support for it kind of petered off. So the fact that you're you have a lot planned for the future of Mortal Kombat 11 is is very exciting news. To me, as someone who loves watching the uh, like the competitive tournament side of things for the game, it is always a tricky thing of doing. Do we do? Do we do our next game? Do we start pre-production mm-hmm. or do we stick with this? It, and that's stuff that there's lots of discussions about that with people much more higher up and important than me. And but uh, yeah, it is it is always a conversation of how much to put into it and i think just we decided earlier on that this game we're going to really stick with i'm not nice. much of a, of a fighting game i've never been very good at them i mean mortal Kombat has been my go-to fighting game when i was in the mood for that type of thing but it seems like over the last 10 years at least from my outsider's perspective that the competitive like esports scene has really taken off for that genre so i can imagine that continued support for these games is like a huge huge focus at least these days because of how popular that has been getting over the years yeah it's something that even back in mkx and justice 2 like we 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 saw it happening and in fact one of the first ever shows i went to when i started with netherrealm was the mk9 tournament at evo in las vegas and i think around that time it, it wasn't nearly as big as it was today but still it was for Evo, you know, people who went to Evo, it was the culmination of all these, you know, fighting game tournaments, these local tournaments that would kind of filter into this, you know, worldwide thing. And people started to take notice that people were really excited in playing our games. And I think uh, everyone started to just pay attention to that, that whole side of it more than they ever had before. Well, I just want to say congratulations again on the on the launch of Mortal Kombat 11. Again, I'm, I'm, a, Thanks, hu- I'm a huge fan of... of- watching the uh, the competitive side of things. I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. Let's talk a little bit about your podcast. Someone should make this. So this is, this is a podcast for, for people who haven't heard it before, where you and some of the people that work with you at NetherRealm, is that correct? That's right. We I started it with some coworkers. Uh, one of our co-hosts actually left NetherRealm to go work at a different studio. But yes, it's we all started it kind of at NetherRealm. And you guys all like sit around and pitch video game ideas to one another. And it is... It is totally cool. I mean, any anybody who's a fan of our show should definitely go check out Someone Should Make This because even though our shows are, are different in the way that we approach things, you guys definitely talk about game design stuff, like how to how to implement something or how to make a, a mechanic interesting. So I'm going to throw that out there. Anyone should go. Everyone should go check out Someone Should Make This, especially if you like what you're listening to right now. But tell me, how did you guys come up with the idea for that podcast? Where did that originate from? 
So it, it sort of was something, and I think part of the appeal of the podcast is, is I feel like people can relate to it because it's, it, it's, it's not unusual for people to sit around and bullshit about games that they want to see made. You know, it's a very natural conversation that happens. And so, and this, that's exactly what it was. We would, during our coffee breaks or, or during lunch or whatever, we would just throw out random ideas to each other. And it was just something that some of them like ended up being really good ideas. You know, some of them were just jokey ideas that we would kind of laugh and uh, about, but then some of them we would like, you know, there, there's something there. And then we would like go back to it day after day and kind of like fine tune it. And a couple of them we may actually do something with. And so we were just talking or like, we should record these. Our first uh, inclination was just to record them. So we have, so we keep track of them. So we don't forget them. Like it was almost for ourselves. Like, Hey, we got to write these down. <laughs> um, let's just, let's, and this is kind of fun. Let's just record this. And then almost secondary to that was this actually might be kind of fun for other people to listen to. And so we started doing it and we did a few like test episodes where we would just jump right into our normal conversations. And we realized instantly that it was not fun to listen to because <laughs> we were skipping over all the things that make a good sh a show a good show is context and sort of bringing people in because we were so on our own wavelength. Mm -hmm. We had such a shorthand that we would just say things that meant nothing to anybody else, but we would get it, you know? And so we had to kind of teach ourselves like, no, no, you have to like kind of play to an audience. You have to explain things better and kind of open it up and give it more context. So, so we recorded about like, I don't know, 10 episodes before we ever published one. And we threw out, you know, like eight of them because we're like, okay. And we were getting better and better. We, we didn't want to release something that we didn't actually think was good. So we kind of were very selective. Oh. And well, so, yeah, we, now we now do we're that kinda... every week. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I feel like we're kind of rolling now. We're, we're about 10 episodes in, so it's still pretty young, but uh, it's a lot of fun to do. And it, it really keeps your brain like sharp. Like we have to, come up with a new video game idea every week, you know, each of us. And for a while we had like tons of them that were like backlogged and like, mm -hmm. oh yeah. And this week I'll talk about the one that I said before. And now we're kind of like, we've been out of those ideas for a few weeks now and we've been coming up with new ones. And the best part about it is, and this is sort of going back to our coffee break discussions is like someone will throw out something really stupid, but then we would all discuss it very seriously, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And like, no, but really, how are the mechanics going to work? And, and when this happens, how does this happen? And so, uh, yeah, that, it's it's really fun to do. And it, it really keeps you thinking about how games work. It sounds you know, like a great just, creative exercise. Totally. Yeah. And then we have, uh, you know, guys emailing in with their ideas that we discuss and stuff like that. So that's fun. I think one of the things that I, I really like about the podcast is that it, it's so supportive, almost like by necessity. Like one of you guys can come up with a, you know, an off the wall idea or something that maybe starts out as pretty bad, but it's not like yeah. you're pitching it to an executive who's like, no, that's not going to make money, you know, throw it in the, <laughs> yeah. throw it in the trash. <laughs> so you guys are almost sort of forced to workshop the ideas to a point that they end up becoming like very fascinating game ideas. It's the uh, yes. And of game design. It is. It, it, totally. it really absolutely is. It's very cool. There's been a couple, uh, there's, there's one example where, uh, our co-host Jeff, had this great idea for a superhero. And then in, and we're like really intrigued by it. And we're like, okay, yeah, awesome. And then, and then he ends with, and then he gets kidnapped and then you got to find him. And then we're like, wait a minute, you just <laughs> threw away the best part of your pitch. Like what does that have to do with anything? And we just gave him so much shit for that. It was so funny, <laughs> but we, but the cool thing was we actually came up with a great solution to that problem. Like he had this, 
his whole thing was this story set up and but we were really interested by the mechanics that that would introduce and he didn't really see it that way and then we kind of ended up you know bringing it back around and it, it was it was really cool now what's been your favorite part of doing the podcast so far you guys are still you're still relatively new but have you settled into anything it's like yes this is my favorite part of doing this it's interesting going through it uh, sometimes we would show up with very little and then really work it out on the podcast and sometimes we would come prepared with this really elaborate pitch and i think the best is somewhere right in the middle where we have a strong idea but it's not every question is not answered and so that there's room to breathe and there's room to for it to totally diverge and change to something completely different i think that's the most fun is just that workshopping of it have any of the listeners expressed an interest in actually making any of the games that you've pitched on the show? Not yet, but we, we've been talking about once this show becomes uh, a smash hit, uh, which will, won't happen. But um, No, it once absolutely it does, will happen. We're going to try we to make it happen. To, yes, we'll, we'll make it happen. Um, you guys will be solely responsible for it. <laughs> Uh, I don't know about all that. Don't, don't put that pressure about... on us. I don't, I don't know that we can, I don't know that we can, we can accomplish that. We'll do our best. It's, it's too late. Um, <laughs> we are going to eventually, it'd be awesome if we could like host a game jam and actually like set up a venue and a thing where people can come and just game jam for 24, 48 hours or whatever. And it could just be basically like, Hey, pro any kind of episode we talked about, any idea that we had, that's not even that specific game idea, but if it inspired something in you, just make whatever and that would be so fun. I would love to do that one day. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a, like a really like spot on culmination for the work that you guys are doing on the podcast. So um I, I well I guess congratulations on on getting the podcast going, man. Sometimes I know it's hard to even just get like that first recording done, you know, like to just get in front of a microphone yeah. for the first time. So it's 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 always cool to to hear about people who are out there who actually put in the work who actually are like, "You know what? Let's let's do this thing and and chasing after something that's really cool so thanks right on man yeah thank thank you for talking about that with us why don't we jump into the meat of our discussion today we're talking about cutscenes. jared yes why don't you lay why don't you lay a little history lesson on us about cutscenes? you may have heard of a little arcade game called pac-man it came out never in heard 1980 never heard um it, it's kind of like metal gear solid um <laughs> it, but it, it was like it early really it was, is a lot of people say pac-man was the first metal gear solid it is yeah Pac-Man was designed by Toru Iwatani and published by Namco and Midway for arcades in Japan and U.S., respectively. It's often cited as one of the first games to include cutscenes because there were little vignettes between levels showing kind of humorous encounters between Pac-Man and the ghosts. Pac-Man would run off one side and then the ghost would be chasing him back. After that, the Commodore 64 had a game called Maniac Mansion. It came out in 1987. It was designed by Ron Gilbert and published by Lucasfilm Games. And it was a point-and-click adventure, like a lot of Lucasfilm games. But the cool thing about this is that it spawned the Scum Engine. A lot of people were, are pretty fond of that. There's also uh, Monkey Island, Full Throttle, Loom. They made fun of it. Like, in the games, they made a lot of references to Scum. I think in the Monkey Island games at one point, they talk about the recipe for Grog. And like the first ingredient is scum, so they even they even mention this <laughs> this um, scripting language quite a bit. In I actually games. had no idea what it stood for, but it stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion, which is pretty cool. Maniac Mansion represents the first time that the term cutscene was actually used. Gilbert coined the term to describe the game's animated sequences when the player had no control. It was sort of their their way of telling quick bits of story between gameplay. 
Now, Danish, have you played Maniac Mansion at all? Uh, you know what's funny? I actually have not played Maniac Mansion, but I do love scum games, and I've played a lot of them. In fact, uh, the original Wii, like way after that was obsolete, I kept it around as my scum machine because I like sideloaded a you know scum emulator onto it, and I'd use the Wii mode as the pointer, and it was so cool. And I used to play a lot of games through my Wii. That is but, genius. Uh, no, ironic. Yeah, it is awesome. I, in fact, it's almost worth like picking one up and just doing that. But ironically, Maniac Mansion is one I actually have not played. I've played a lot of other ones. So I, I was born in 86, at the very end of 86. So Maniac Mansion was, I would say, before my time, mostly because I couldn't play video games when I was six months old. Casual. <laughs> I know, yeah. Get good, baby. Now, I, I, um, I loved Day of the Tentacle, which was the sequel to this. And it's funny because before we settled on this topic and I uh, started doing research for this episode, I actually started replaying Day of the Tentacle with my three-year-old. And uh, it's nonsense. It was it's so hard. It like, was a to, trip down memory lane. Well, try, try to explain yeah, that logic to, to a three-year-old. It's not about the logic. It's, it's about finding a game where there's like no fail state, no, um, no like pressure, you know, where he can just kind of move the character around the screen and make them interact with stuff like that. That, that, that all works really well for a three-year-old. That, Obviously, that remake was really context, good. But. Yeah, I got, did I, I think it was free at one point on the PlayStation. So I that's, think that's where why I we, it from. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know that in Maniac Mansion, it was actually designed based on the main house at Skywalker Ranch? I did not know that. That's, that's a little fun little tidbit oh, I just learned. You're, you're full of Wikipedia tidbits there, Jerry. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's, that's basically the whole concept for this show. We just kind of funnel Wikipedia through a podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's whole YouTube channels that are very popular. That do that, <laughs> so. Nothing wrong with that. And now we're going to read the Wikipedia article for the Australian <laughs> War with Emus. Oh, not, let's not that's, get started. We'll be here all day. That's, that's a joke about something we talked about before recording. <laughs> <laughs> and also a uh, tease for maybe some future episode of someone. I was just going to say, I have an idea for a game. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so, Danish, when, when you think about cutscenes in games, what's the first thing that jumps to your mind? So it's interesting because I, I was aware that Maniac Mansion was the first one to coin that term and then the whole Pac-Man thing. But in my mind, for whatever reason, that's not what I always thought of. Uh, what I thought of was Ninja Gaiden for NES because that was the first game where it actually broke the language of the game. So in other examples, in Maniac Mansion specifically, like the cutscenes are played out. And if you didn't really know better, if you were like an outside observer, you could think that was the game because... The guys are still moving around. The dialogue boxes are popping. It's not really breaking any rules mm-hmm. of the game. But Ninja Gaiden was an actual like comic book panels, a totally different art form even. And then that was a precursor to each level in the game. So that was the first thing I thought of. There's a couple other NES games that did something very similar. I remember the very intro to Blaster Master was amazing. It had a little like animated kind of motion uh, comic type thing. I love Blaster, really Master. A, Blaster Master. Blaster Master is one of my favorite it. games from the NES era, but I do not remember anything about cutscenes in that game. Yeah, like the guy's uh, frog gets like zapped by something and then uh, jumps down a hole, and then he has to go down and find it. And he like he drops down and he sees like the tank and he sees a suit. And he's like, "All right, I guess I better suit up to find my frog." And I think that's the As game. You do. I, mean, I could be misremembering <laughs> it, but I thought it was incredible. I, I am completely drawing a blank on that. I remember none of this. I'm like, um, oh, like the guy in uh, 
Westworld when he like looks at the picture of him of himself as like an android. Oh, yeah. like, I don't, <laughs> it I, means I don't see to me. anything. Yeah, that's me when you're talking about all this. <laughs> uh, I recommend looking it up. It's it's a blast. No pun intended. So, Jared, what, what do you first think of when you're thinking about cutscenes? Well, we kind of touched on it at the beginning, but Metal Gear Solid, I remember being the first what? game. So, this is not the first game that I remember playing that had cutscenes in it, but it was the first time that I played a game that looked like a movie. And I remember just seeing those cutscenes, that first that first intro scene when he's he's scuba diving through the tunnel and then you go up the elevator and there's a late titles yes. card. I, I just thought was the coolest thing. So that'll forever be my first impression when I think about cutscenes. The first game that I really remember seeing a cutscene in was like I don't know. Like if I think about it, it's like it's something like Punch Out, right? Like I, I just remember the uh, the training sequence in, in Punch Out. Oh, I love it. Oh, like for such a simple scene, like the music in that in that is so killer, the music's so good. But the idea of a cutscene never really like impacted me until I got to around the PlayStation era. Um, I was one of the the people who bought a PlayStation on day one and got Warhawk as one of the launch titles with it. <laughs> and uh, that one, that game has like full motion video cutscenes between missions, and that was the first time I I, I feel like really noticing a cutscene in a game. Oh. Um... I forgot about FMVs in this conversation, to be honest, because now that I think about it, Red Alert, I played the shit out of those games, and they had the best live action FMVs oh, yeah. ever. No, there were definitely there were definitely some really great. There were also some really terrible uh, <laughs> games that had FMVs, but I think about you know you think about a game like Wing Commander as one of the like they actually they actually cast real actors, you know, <laughs> like yeah. you got Mark Hamill and um, oh who else was in the Wing Commander FMVs. Uh, was it Ron Perlman or was that something else? What's his name from uh, Clockwork Orange? Uh, oh, uh, Malcolm McDowell. Yes. He yeah. Yeah. I, see, that's uh, full motion videos are a thing that I don't think people who are, you know, born in the, in the 2000s know anything about. There's new ones. They, they, they're they still releasing them. That's true. There, There's like her I know, story. I think, I think that, about her story. Because there's been a little bit of resur- resurgence. I, I think like... Now it's kind of like a novelty where like back in the day, that's what we had. We had yeah. like we had yeah. FMVs as our cutscenes, which is videos of people usually with pretty poor acting. I should I, I should didn't they do that? that? Rude. I shouldn't <laughs> say that. They did they were probably doing the best they could with what they had at the time. Didn't one of the recent uh Twisted Metal games purposely do like, hey, a throwback, we're gonna do our cutscenes in full motion video? Does that sound familiar? No. No, I but played Twisted Metal since Twisted Metal Black, so I don't really Yeah, I think it was for this generation that's pretty cool if that's what they did though know. just as a nice throwback yeah. to the originals and then do you remember there was um a, a a need for speed game that had full motion cutscenes, and then to make it seem not as jarring they put this weird like filter over the actors to make them look like they were cg it was really interesting <laughs> it's like ac- they accidentally created art it was one of the more recent ones maybe like two or three or four Need for Speed. Yeah, they were, they were, I remember because it was like, it had like that Fast and the Furious tone and they were trying to be kind of edgy with some of it. And then it was, I don't know, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was a cool way to, to address that for a racing game. Uh, it was a 2015 uh, Need for wow. Speed. Wow. That had that. That's yeah. wild. In case there is someone out there who's not familiar with the cutscene, it's typically like the part of the game where the control of the player is taken away and, and you're just shown a video essentially, right? Is there anything to add to that definition that might help uh, as we move forward in this conversation, just like pinpointing exactly what a cutscene is? 
I mean, I think that's a pretty good, concise description of it. But I think as, as we go along, we're going to see that the evolution of that has changed quite a bit, I think, in, in more recent history of gaming. I, I, there's been a lot of changes to cutscenes. I mean, cutscenes to me feel like almost like this battlefield in game design where they have issues. I'm not going to like dance around it. Like, I, I feel like cutscenes certainly have issues. And I think a lot of people are aware of those issues. So there's been a lot of, I, I want to say improvements. But I, but I don't want to say improve. There's been a lot of like changes over the years to try to make them um, more interesting or more interactive. And, uh, and I don't know that all of it has necessarily worked. But let's start out with some of the positives. So Danish, when we're talking about cutscenes, are there any games that stick out in your mind as being positive examples of including cutscenes? My personal taste is I like it when they are short snippets that are kind of well paced throughout. And... Once in a while, if it's, it goes a little longer, that's fine. I'm, I'm trying to think of a good ratio. I remember like back in the N64 days, like GoldenEye, Perfect Dark. I remember thinking that like, I like the way they're doing this. I like that it's like 30 seconds before level, 30 seconds after level, maybe a minute tops. And it just was really cool because it was not so long that I was like being impatient. But at the same time, it was a cool like, you know, calm before the storm sort of moment. Like, okay, I'm about to infiltrate this thing or whatever, or you get some narrative fed to you. And it just felt like the perfect time to uh, absorb narrative before going into the game. That's kind of what I like. I think, um, you know, Uncharted does a good job. They, those things go longer, but, and we can get into this, but they do the integration so well in terms of in and out of cutscenes. And, uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's kind of my thing. Like That's one of the knocks I have against Metal Gear is that, I have a very similar opinion or experience playing the first Metal Gear Solid and like the underwater sequence in the elevator. I was being so, I was so wowed by it. This is like a movie. This is so cool. And I very distinctly remember a roller coaster of emotion where I was so into it. And then I realized that it kept, it was, it was still going and I started getting impatient. I'm like, okay, this is really cool, but okay, guys, you know, enough's enough. And then, you know, later in the game, when you get into like the longer cutscenes, I started really hating it this is i i really get what you're doing i appreciate it but this is way too much and i want to get to the game and so i think to me the ones that strike a good balance are the ones that i like in terms of enough to get you invested but not so much that you're impatient and that's the ones i like the best jared i feel like you got to jump in here <laughs> well i i feel like my my opinions have changed over time as well i like i said i was super stoked about metal gear solid when I first played that, like nothing I'd ever played before. It, it was a, it was like, wow, this is telling like a really adult military drama. I was super into it. Fast forward a few years later when Metal Gear Solid 4 came out and I was sitting watching, I was 20 minutes into a cutscene in that game uh, and I put that game down almost forever. <laughs> I, I, I really, <laughs> I, I couldn't do it. It was, it was too much uh, as much as I love the series. I eventually did go back and and play that game like probably five years later, but yeah, I was I was you know I was in college. I was like, man, I do not have the time to sit here through a forty minute long cutscene. So that that kind of bummed me out. But yeah, like I I really enjoyed that style of storytelling growing up, and I think I don't know if that is just because I've changed, but I used to play games with cutscenes, and I always looked forward to them as like. My reward for finishing this part of the game is like a really cool cutscene. Usually they were pre-rendered, obviously had better graphics. But I find now that 
every time there's a cutscene that takes control away from me, I end up like on my phone looking at my phone for some reason. And I think I just don't have <laughs> an attention span anymore. Just like, if I'm not, just, like, you don't even know how you engaged. ended up on your phone. You're yeah, just I'm on like, your what phone. am I? You're like, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> yeah, and then it'll give me control back, and I was like, wait, what happened? And then yeah, so you know, you said something really interesting uh, about, and I what you're describing, like the cutscene being the reward. I totally remember that feeling as well. I have a theory. Tell me what you guys think. Back in those times, the cutscenes, like you said, were pre-rendered. And mm -hmm. so, like, you know, the classic example is like Final Fantasy VII or something like that, where they look, for the time, they were absolutely gorgeous. And they were well beyond what the game itself actually looked absolutely. like. Absolutely. And so, there was, even like, I remember back in the day, like, in Nintendo games, um, I would read through the instruction manual and, like, see the cartoon drawings of, like, Link and, like, the uh, Moblins and stuff. I'm like, oh, they look so cool. And then, like... I would use my imagination and mm -hmm. see like the sprites on screen, like, oh, that's what they're supposed to be. So what do you, the, that reward thing is maybe like, I get to see what the game really looks like. Like I'm playing this video game version, but like when it gets to a cutscene, now suddenly all these characters are alive with all this detail. And yeah, that's sort of no, the I think that's and a now really that, good way to say that. And now that we're, now it's like one-to-one, -one, that's no longer the case, you know? I think you hit the nail right on the head with that. Because you think about like the, the time for me when I thought cutscenes were the most impactful, like I think about a game like Final Fantasy VII, which has some of my favorite cutscenes of all time in any video game. But it was around that time that we had stuff like Toy Story before, you know, like around that same time. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was probably before Final Fantasy VII. But we had, the, we had these movies coming out that were computer animated. And in my head, I was like, oh, you know, it'd be so cool if, if video games could look like this or feel like this. Everyone, and, yes, everyone thought that. That's so and, true. And I think something, you know, like the, the cut scenes in games, these beautiful pre-rendered scenes in games gave us like those those feelings of like video games are, are as serious of an art form as movies are. Like it, it started to feel like that around that time. Like, look, you can you can make a video game that has real, you know, real story in it, real substance, real maturity. And, and it's being taken as seriously as this other art form that has you know sort of long been established as an art form so i think i think you guys yeah. are both absolutely correct and that that plays a big part in why cutscenes around the uh like that playstation one era were so important to to games at the time i mean do, do, do you guys ever uh show off cutscenes to like non-gamer friends oh, like yeah. your parents 100%. or like yeah you would show like when you show a game off you would show off the cutscenes mm -hmm. right like that because they were like the most impressive thing like look, look what games are which is ironic because that's their least game part of it and I remember still kind of doing that up until the PlayStation 3 era, right? Like um, yeah. PlayStation 3 came out and there was the game Heavenly Sword. And this was around the time that HD TVs were just starting to become pretty new in people's homes. So it would be like you put on the PlayStation 3 and you put in Heavenly Sword and you show off the cutscenes in the game because it really shows off what the game and what your television can do. And, and that yeah. was really cool. And now as, as even like HD televisions have become pretty standard in everyone's household even that appeal has kind of worn off i think now now when i show off a game it's like just look at this world i'm running around yeah. in. you know mm -hmm. like i was showing off red dead 2 yep, it's like exactly look at how gorgeous this is like i and when, and when the cutscene started that's when it became less interesting so I, I guess this might be a good time for us to talk about video games that that miss the mark with cutscenes. so danish when, when you're when you think about cutscenes, what what games don't quite execute so the first thing I thought of about someone really missing the mark on a cutscene is purely from like a game design technical thing. I think it was infamous for PS3 
I might be getting it wrong, and I hope I'm not, because it, it was so bad because there was this long, unskippable cutscene before the boss, and if you died to the boss, you would start before the unskippable mm. cutscene, and it was torture. I mean, I remember back in the day, unskippable cutscenes were, I think, the norm. I, th- I think yes. the fact that you could skip them was pretty like rare, and just imagine that today, like how that would just not fly at all. But it was back in the day. It was like, guys, we put a lot of money oh, in yeah. these cutscenes. You're, <laughs> You're gonna, gonna watch, watch these cutscenes, <laughs> just like in Clockwork Orange. Like they're gonna hold your eyes open and make you watch it. Yes, or like uh, Black Mirror. Like, don't turn away. <laughs> We're gonna pause it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. I think that that's a big part of like. Obviously, game design has changed so much. Like, I, I think now it's almost expected that you can skip cutscenes. Although I do think about Monster Hunter World, a game that I I I actually don't know if cutscenes are skippable in that game. Because sometimes it seemed like I could skip cutscenes, and sometimes I couldn't, which I thought was odd. But mm. that um, there was definitely been that shift where people, where it, it felt like designers were like, "Okay, some people are going to want to see this, some people aren't. Let's let them, let's give them the option to skip it if they want to." Halfway through playing that game, I just started skipping all the cutscenes because n- none of the story made any sense to me. So I was like, "Well, this is. I'm just going to get back to like getting my loot because." What is even happening in this story? <laughs> yeah. And well, you know, you think about fun- something like Final Fantasy VII, right? The pre-rendered cutscenes were typically for these like huge events in the game, things that they couldn't reasonably deliver while the player held agency in the game. You know, it'd be like, oh, the, you know, the giant cannon is shooting the big dinosaur. So we get, you know, like we'll do this in a cutscene because they just literally couldn't show you that in engine. Monster Hunter World was weird because it was you were watching your character do things that you normally did in the game anyway. It felt really odd. Like, okay, my guy dodged the monster attack. Okay, he pulled out his shield and defend. Like, why am I not in control of this right now? This should totally be the stuff that I am in control of. I don't I don't get it. That's a, that's a great point. And I think some games can fall into that. That's, that's definitely something that I feel like should be a, a question that you ask when you're designing something like this is like, why is this not playable? Why are we saying that? What's the most important thing right now? And and sometimes I get it because we you just want to make it flow nicely. Like, oh, I, he's doing the same things I'm doing and then it, it moves on. But if it stays in that zone too long of, hey, he's doing the things, same things I'm doing, then you start asking, well, why am I not doing them? So that feeling that we, we've talked about with Metal Gear Solid for the first time where you're, you're going through that little intro sequence, you make your way up the elevator, it's very cinematic. I got that feeling again recently playing through the newest God of War. And that game is uh, pretty well known for having no loading screens and it's the camera never cuts away. Um, they also don't ever take control away from you, really. One of the earliest fight scenes in that game, I remember being so cinematic and they also didn't take the control away from me ever. That was that similar. I got that same like endorphin rush as I did with the first time I played Metal Gear Solid. I was like, wow, this is what games could be now. Like, I want every game to present story this way. They're giving that cinematic experience, but the camera work in that was just outstanding in a way that just made it unlike anything I've ever really played before. I remember feeling that same way for Uncharted 2 because the bit like you're on a building and it's collapsing, and I just kept expecting to lose control and I never did and I everything was sliding around the whole thing was toppling over I couldn't believe that I was never not in control it was incredible it's been a long time since I played the Uncharted games and do you really have true agency it's like sure like you're still moving that guy forward but what happens if you just stop moving like can you choose to just 
fall through the floor like probably not yes it's very it is very linear but it still like gives that illusion to me and i think i I would prefer that versus just taking full control away and you know god of war is this as a series is kind of infamous for their their quick time events which they got away with in this reboot uh reimagining of it and i'm totally all about that yeah quick time events were odd they were an odd time in game development right because qtes i think indicated that developers recognized that there was like this fundamental issue with cutscenes, and that like the, the the point of a video game is that the player has agency and like that's what makes a video game a video game that's what separates it from watching a movie is it's a very active experience and cutscenes are almost at direct odds with that with that that fundamental design philosophy for video games so QTEs to me felt like this weird half step where they said like, look, we understand that cutscenes are, you know, the, the opposite of a video game, but we still want you to do something. So we're going to have you press these buttons that have nothing to do with the mechanics you've used ever up until this point. And uh, it's just going to represent these like abstract things that your character is doing within the scene. And so they added fail states, but I, I never liked QTEs at all. I think there's ways to do it right. And you can do QTEs for different reasons. You can do it in a sort of cynical way, kind of what you're alluding to where, hey, let's we don't want the player to put the controller down. We don't want to admit to ourselves that this is not a game right now, so how about we just have them hit buttons mm-hmm. at times? But I think there are some instances, and I think God of War actually does some of it, where we want you to feel like you're there. And so, for example, like there's, uh, it's kind of, not great anymore, but back in the day, there's certain scenes in the first God of War game where you have to really button mash hard mm. and you have to do it you have to sustain it for a very long time. And your whole arm is flexing and you're tense up and you are Kratos. You are actually flexing. And there is sort of this visceral emotion and physical reaction that you get out of that. I remember in God of War 3, there was a QT moment where I thought it was so cool because you're like taking down this guy or whatever and to put Kratos's thumbs in the guy's eye sockets and like gouge his eyes out. You have to click both left stick and right stick. No, that's great. And so you literally wow. are doing the same motion he's like doing. It. And I was like, oh my God, that's cool. So I think if you do it with a mind of like, the reason we're doing this is to bring you into the experience, then I think it can work. And I like a lot of David Cage games try to do that. And I think it's mixed results. Sometimes they really do nail it. And sometimes it is sort of like busy work, but at least his games have that sort of like, philosophy to it whereas other games it's sort of like hey quick react to this or pay attention and don't look away or don't go on your phone and that that stuff yeah i agree it's a very uh, shallow way to do it it's funny as you as you talk about the uh, the god of war the old god of war games with the button mashing it reminds me of metal gear solid and then where you have to like put the controller on your arm and it like gives you a massage because they activated the dual shock <laughs> on it you remember yeah. that yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, the whole Psycho Mantis thing. Oh, as well. dude, that, was, that was funny. I remember that. It's just like, oh, put the controller on your arm and it'll massage it after you have to button mash to... Who are you, who are you trying to save there, Jared? I feel like uh, you know well, there's the, there's the torture scene and you have to like, you button mash to like keep your strength up. And that's like... You Is that have not to, like, the scene? I, it might be. I, I don't remember. Mm. Yeah, I think I think Otacon calls you or something on the codec and he's like, yeah. he's like, I'm going to use the nano machines to to help you survive. <laughs> I don't know. Nano machines. Kojima's a madman. He's an absolute <laughs> madman. Cutscenes are, I mean, they've been a, such a big method for delivering story in video games for so long. But I, I'm curious what you guys think about cutscenes in the world of streaming games. 
and I guess Danish, I'll throw it to you. Like, wh- where do you see cutscenes like moving moving forward in design with so many games relying on streaming as as part of their marketing? Um, are you talking about players streaming the game? Yeah, yeah, to player, wider yeah, players streaming the games to wider audiences. Like, do you, do you see in the future cutscenes changing to accommodate that style of uh, I don't know, like ingesting video games? That's a it's a really good question. I don't know the answer to it i i will say that i think it depends on the kind of game it is I, I i can't imagine a single player immersive game like an uncharted style game or last of us or something making any concessions to that because i think that the streaming is sort of just like an additive thing but there are games like competitive games uh multiplayer games but that are more kind of like um popular on on streaming platforms but they don't really do cutscenes anyway. They they do an interesting thing that we can talk about, like the external kind of cutscene outside the game. So I'm not really sure how it would change. I, I mean, have you noticed any changes? Like in because in the last few years now, streaming is becoming so popular. Like, have you noticed any changes in in cutscenes? Because I don't think so. I don't think that I have. I mean, beyond just the natural progression of cutscenes, and it's hard to say if streaming has had any sort of impact on the on the way that it works. And and I will briefly say, I mean, I, I think about a game like Mortal Kombat 11 and the way that there is story delivered in very small snippets in that game. Like when you when two characters are selected before a fight begins, they have this little exchange before the fight happens. And I, it, I hesitate to call it a cutscene because I don't think it satisfies our true definition of a cutscene. But it is it is sort of like an interesting way to deliver that story in a quick, concise way. And even um, a lot of the commentators will refrain from speaking during the uh, the character intros because I, even that tiny little bit of story adds a little bit of tension to the fight. Even though it's you know even though it's between two professional gamers who are playing the game, that little tiny bit of narrative element does add yeah. something to that experience. I feel like people who are watching a stream, they are getting the same thing out of the game that the actual player is. And maybe that's not true. Maybe they, they, there's something else going on. There, there, there's obviously like community style thing like Twitch plays where people are all kind of playing together. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, just like sort of a spectating thing, they're kind of just living vicariously through the player. They, they're just enjoying watching. So I think whatever the stuff you're talking about, those little small intros to the fight, we're doing that for the player. But all of that still can satisfy the spectator too. It's not really, it doesn't really need to be different. And you had also briefly mentioned that a lot of the cutscene stuff has been moved outside of the game. I think about a game like Overwatch, which has done a very good job with their animated short films. But I'm curious what you think, Danish, about games like that, moving the, you know, those story elements outside of the game. That's tricky. I think you can, like Overwatch does it really well. Like when they release a new animated short, it's almost kind of like an event. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, did you see the new thing? You know, and they're so well done. And they are more like trailers and like marketing than an actual cutscene for the game, mm-hmm. you know? And it's cool backstory. And you don't really need to know that stuff. I think that it can kind of backfire if you put too much of that outside the game. The perfect example is like the original Destiny. Where the like, all the lore, yeah. car- the Grimoire cards, I think they, I mean, there's a lot of reasons probably why they went in that direction. I don't think it's their, it was their first choice, but yeah, they got a lot of blowback from that because you don't want to go outside the game to experience something that you feel like should be in the game. 
I don't feel like that way. But like I said, I don't feel that way about Overwatch because I think they they made it feel like a trailer. They made it feel like a cool mm-hmm. hype thing. It's that's not essential to the game. And Jared, what do you, what are your thoughts on this? Because I know we've talked a little bit in the past about the uh, the Overwatch shorts and stuff. But what what do you think about games moving some of that story outside? I feel like if I have to go outside the game to interact with a part of it, I, I it's going to lose my interest. I do enjoy what Blizzard has done with those. I mean, they've always been really good at at delivering story through cutscenes, but it's not really you know I don't go to Overwatch for the story really. You know, it's, I think it's that's a, the I think that's the point. But to, to me, cutscenes are about delivering story and, and progressing the narrative. And I just don't think that that would work for a narrative-heavy game if it's outside of the game itself. Yeah, exactly. If you think about the game and the story, if you separate those two things, one should always point to the other. Like, it has to be one directional. For example, if I see an awesome Overwatch short film, that should lead me to the game. The game should never lead me outside the game. That's that's the way I feel anyway. It should always be one directional into the game. I also don't feel that every game needs cutscenes. Recently, started playing The Division Two, and that's a you know it's a it's a multiplayer focused experience. It's really where that game shines. But your main missions, you walk up to a door or something, and it loads a cutscene, and I could I played through that whole game. I, I'm like at the max level, I'm at max gear score, everything. I could not tell you one thing that happened in that story because I just didn't care. Um, I just wanted to go back to to getting loot. You know, it's it just it, that yeah. style of storytelling was so at odds with the gameplay loop. Is it, I had no interest in it, and that's where Destiny fell short for me. Uh, it was that I was really expecting something that had more narrative substance. Uh, and then when I learned that, like, you really couldn't get, like, the full lore of it unless you did, like, some deep dives outside the game, it just kind of it fell off in that way. I think this is actually probably maybe the best time to bring this up because, Danish, before, um, you know, when I first reached out to you and we were discussing a topic to choose, I think one of the things that you were most interested in discussing was the the way that video games rely so heavily on the languages established by by film and television is that is that a sentiment that that we all agree with? Because because I certainly agree with that. Uh, I, yeah. I I think yeah. that that's where we started. You know, certainly with Metal Gear Solid, that was like, mm-hmm. man, this looks like a movie. Um, but, but that's because you know, video games were limited by a lot of things like technology and resources. But now that we have a history built up of of narrative design and and how what, what, things that we can do in designing video games, they're they're starting to take on their own identity and not having to rely so much on. Uh, established practices through film and and stuff like that. Maybe this is sort of, sort of spoiling the ending of this episode, but I I would be happy if all cutscenes went away. I think I think that I think I'd be happy if all cutscenes went away. And I think it's because it takes agency away from the player and relies too heavily on these the way that stories are told in more in more passive mediums. Well, let me provide an, a counterexample to that is Red Dead Redemption Two. Where they had cutscenes and they were they were fun. The acting's good. The voice acting is, is is outstanding. But then also each mission starts with like a ten minute horse ride and like sure mm-hmm. you have control, <laughs> but you can't really do anything. You're just following and listening yeah. listening to them talk, and that's not super great either. I I, don't, I wasn't really uh, on board with that style of, of storytelling. No, totally yeah, not, and neither am I. I'm I'm not suggesting that that is a the perfect way to do it, but. I, I'm curious, Danish. What what made you bring this idea up to me in the in the first place? Like, 
where did where did you want to go with this conversation? Because like, what what is it about the the elements of film and television language that strike you when we're talking about video game narrative delivery? To broaden it out a little bit, almost every art form contains in it other art forms. So, for example, we're talking about the, the language of film and television. Um, I remember there's a great quote. I th I'm pretty sure it's Stanley Kubrick who was talking about the importance of film editing and that editing is the only art form unique to film because you have cinematography that comes from photography. You have drama, the written word, you have acting. All of those things existed before movies, but editing was the one thing that movies can do only and only movies can do. And so I feel like you can take that to other art forms as well. So video games, now they are a combination of movies and other things and sound design and you know architecture and world building. And then the one thing that they do that no one else does is interactivity. And I don't think it's a problem to incorporate other things. Like I don't, I actually don't think it's a problem to incorporate just straight up film language and cutscenes, as long as you do something with it, as long as it's sort of one of many ways to express your artistic idea. You know, like if you have a movie and there's just this amazing score and this swelling, you know, instrumental, what are we at a concert? You know, no one ever says that. It's like it's integrated into the whole experience. What I wanted to get at is that interactivity is, I think, underused when it comes to delivering a narrative. The thing that I'm most fascinated by, and I wish more games would try to do, and it's very hard, and that's why games don't do it as much, is try to figure out ways for the actual gameplay to tell the story. And so the, the example that I always go back to, I think it's maybe one of the most mind-blowing moments of any game ever, I'm really building this up, is uh, Brother's Tale of Two Sons. Have you guys ever played this game? I have. I love that game. So I'm going to spoil the ending of it. But if you haven't played it, I highly recommend playing it and just you know skipping a minute ahead. But basically, the, the whole game is you're these two brothers. One, the younger brother, older brother. One of them's on, like, I think the, you know, the younger brother's on the left stick and his pick up and put down and action buttons are on the left trigger. The older brother is on the right stick. His interact button is on the right trigger. The whole game is kind of basically the equivalent of like, rubbing your stomach and tapping your head at the same time. You're trying to like go through these different motions and it's fun. It's cute. It's a, it's a nice, simple story. And there's always puzzles like, okay, I got to get the, the heavy, the, the, the older brother to go stand on this thing so that he, cause he weighs more and I, I could do this. And I lift this guy, the gate up with this other guy, you know? So it's, they're always working together and throughout the whole game, the younger brother can't swim. And so you have to go climb on the older brother's back. And then now you're swimming with the older brother with the, the right stick and the right trigger. So, the whole game you're going through, and then, spoiler, at the end of the game, the older brother dies. And you are now the younger brother, and you're stranded on this island. You have to swim, and you can't swim. And it's like a puzzle in the game. And so I'm running around with the left stick. I'm trying to swim. He can't. He's, like, going back to shore. And I'm just stuck. I'm like, what, what do I do? What do I do? The solution to the puzzle, even thinking about it now, just gives me chills. The way you do it is by using the older brother's interact button. So you move the left stick forward to go into the water and then you use the right trigger to swim, which has never been done in the game before. The whole game is teaching you the right trigger is the older brother. And it's this absolutely beautiful, amazing metaphor about someone who's passed that lives with you still and you know using their skills to bring you forward. And then it's the same thing. Like now you're going through these other puzzles and things you couldn't do before you're doing now, but you're still using the right trigger. So that is by far the best example I can think of of 
the actual gameplay, the actual physical controller in your hand telling you a narrative that is totally like moving and emotional. And that is what I think games need to do more of. There's other games, there's other examples of this. I think, you know, like uh, Braid. Braid is a good example of you're telling the story and the puzzles are actually integral to the actual narrative. So my whole thesis on this is that I don't think anything should go away. I don't think the film language should go away, but we need to actually push forward the things that games are uniquely capable of doing. I think that I've brought this up before, but the ending of the original Red Dead Redemption was one of the first times where I was like, this is the type of experience and story that only a video game could do. And I think I've said on this podcast before that video games should stop trying to be like films because there are really interesting experiences and narratives that only video games can tell. And that's what I felt about the ending of Red Dead Redemption. Um, once you're, you know, you're playing as the sun grown up, it gives you this like the very last few minutes of the game. It gives you like a, a quest. And it's like, oh, go this way. And then you just come across the guy who killed your father. He's just like fishing or pissing in the stream or whatever. And I don't remember it asking me to do anything, but I was like, I'm going to blow this guy away because he killed my dad. Like what, what a crazy chance encounter. And then that's the end. That's the true ending of the game. And you get the late title card. And I just remember feeling like there is no way to really have that experience in something like film. So, yeah, I think that uh, yeah. Brothers is a great example, but I will always think about that moment that kind of really it was one of those moments that made me realize that video games can do something that's truly unique. As you and I were discussing this, Danish, I was trying to think of games where like the true like fun, whatever fun means, but like the, the true joy of playing the game comes from the actual mechanics of the game. And I think about a designer like Bennett Foddy, the guy who made Quop and Getting Over It. Um, mm -hmm. And Quop is like, is super stuff. silly. It's, you know, it, it's a game where you're just like controlling the leg muscles of a runner. <laughs> and so much of the joy of it just comes from like trying to get five meters into this, into a race without falling and cracking your head open. But to me, like on a very fundamental level, that is pure game design right like the mechanics of playing and failing at that game are the fun of playing it you're not relying on the storytelling you're not relying on there even necessarily being a story but the game is still at least for me was very fun to try to master and a lot of the story that comes from it comes from your own personal experience of engaging with those mechanics of of like, oh my gosh, I made it 10 meters. Oh my, did you know that there's a hurdle at 50 meters in the race? Oh, you know, like I I finally made it to the end of the race. Like to me, that was the, the story of the game is what came from the mechanics of it. And none of that relied on the, like the traditional methods of storytelling. I also think about a game like Minecraft, right? Where there's no, there's no story communicated in Minecraft, but all of the mechanics in that game are built around the idea of building. And everything, you know, everything that you do in that game is in service of that central mechanic of building something, you know, like seeing how far you can you can press your luck in order to construct a better house for yourself or more effectively collect food. You know, like it, it, it's all around the central thing. And like the, the enemies are so genius in that game too. things like the, the creepers, because they're they're there to destroy the thing that you've built. And the endermen, they take, you know, blocks out of the stuff that you've built and you got to go replace them and it th these are the things that i think about like these are the games that i think about as like 
this is what I want from more games is, is games that communicate story through mechanics in that way. I think Minecraft is a great example of, I don't, I mean, they, I, they obviously made Minecraft story mode, which I haven't played, but you know, it looks fun, but you are making your own narrative. It's like, um, it's like a, any kind of sandbox type game. Like, oh, you're not going to believe what I did in this game. And you tell your friends about it. You're making the narrative. So it trying to put more on more outside narrative on you is not going to be additive, but I will say Quop potentially, I could see I could see a thirty second intro cutscene to Quop that tells me about who this guy is that would make it potentially funnier or more fun or like knowing what his knowing what is at stake might make that game more fun because that game it's very silly and obviously it would be humorous and it's not taking away from anything I think stakes in a game can elevate it. It's a totally a case-by-case thing. It's funny, circling all the way back to the beginning of Pac-Man, I don't know that those cutscenes give you any more stakes to the actual game. And I think that's really what it comes down to, is like making you, want, making you care more about what you're doing. So I think it, it can either just backfire. Like if you have story kind of attached to Minecraft, and it's like, well, that, I, don't, I don't care about that. That's not even what I'm playing this game for. It's going to actively detract from it. If it's something like Pac-Man where it's like, Okay, that's that's funny. That's cute. It has nothing to do with the game, so it doesn't really add to it. Or maybe there's something like Quop, where they give a fun thirty second intro that explains where this guy is and like his whole country is watching him, and this he's like saved up his whole life <laughs> to be in this race, and everything's come down to this. And then you fall after two feet. That could be funny. That could be actually additive. You know, you might be onto something. I I don't know. Like there's there's a part of me that thinks that like Quop is is like perfect. The way it is because <laughs> because it is literally just all mechanics driven but you're cha- you're kind of yeah. changing my mind about it I, do you think that like are we at a point in game design where like the best use of a cutscene is to establish stakes like have we moved have we moved past all of the other benefits of cutscenes and are we now just left with with stakes as being the primary reason to include them in games well if you think about why put narrative I mean, yes, that's that's one thing, but there's also just moving the plot forward. But I guess what we're saying is like that could be done in a myriad of different ways. You don't need to do cutscenes. The reason why cutscenes are employed, I think, is one, it's a very understood language by people that they've grown up mm-hmm. watching TV movies, and so it's very very efficient. Like if you you can do something like the the example I just made up off the on the top mm-hmm. of my head, like. Uh, Quop, you are you've worked your whole life for this. This all comes down to this. this is a super impressive moment. Now, if we did a cutscene, that would literally be thirty seconds. But if we wanted to actually make that part of the game, that would take a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And so, absolutely, and that's not really the point of it, you know. So I think efficiency and just I don't know expressing your intentions. Cutscenes can just be the quickest, easiest way to do it, and also it's much easier doing the equivalent of Brothers or uh, Red Dead One. That's very difficult and you have to really earn it and you have to really think about it. Whereas if you think about it in terms of a movie, that's much easier to do. But is that good design? I guess I'll ask. Like, is it good design to be like, it's just easier to do it this way, so we'll just do it this way? Or or should games be moving towards a state where we find ways to make the delivery of narrative more interactive? I think in my heart, there's always going to be a place for both, right? 
in, in no. something like oh my god i i this is <laughs> <laughs> no. i i there's a part of me Pick no one, no there's a part it. of me that wants to agree with jared so badly because i have whenever i say anything like so definite on this show oftentimes afterwards i i regret <laughs> it i'm always like nah, i could see like different things for different people and all that but i don't know on this one no no <laughs> just no like to me video so, the the agency of the player is so fundamental to the to the playing of a game that i think that anytime it gets wrestled away from a player it's it's like a, i don't want to say failure because obviously i understand there's like technical limitations to to all of this like every game has a budget and sometimes you just can't you can't make it work for every single game so i'm not saying like abolish all cutscenes but i think like in the ideal world of game design cutscenes don't exist i i do like the direction that god of war took it where it you know they, i would say that god of war has cutscenes but they're interactive you still have control of your character the camera is really cool the way that it that it follows through these these epic you know moments of kratos like jumping on a dragon and and it, it you never you feel like you're still doing stuff that's really cool but then there's like you know a game like the last of us which is probably one of my favorite narrative experiences in, in games and that has a lot of cutscenes. and i'm not saying that you can't have the same emotional impact without cutscenes that that game had it's just a different style and there's also certain games where sometimes you just need a break you know if, if it's something that's really intense and uh, you get through a big boss battle that you spent a lot of time on or it was really hard. Sometimes it's nice to just be able to sit back for a little bit and, and have that breath of fresh air and, and watch, you know, a little bit of narrative before moving on to the next thing. You know, I, I was saying how cutscenes are really easy and efficient. And you were asking, well, is that actually a good design? And I think that's a good question. And I it kind of goes back to our QTE discussion about well, if you're using it as a crutch, then it's not a good design. But if you if you know what you're doing and you're using it like precisely, then it can be great design. For example, let's throw out John Wick. You're making a John Wick video game and you have awesome mechanics. You have great gunplay and it's a blast. Okay. Now, what's great about that movie is the first 15 minutes setting up why he is so pissed. I think if you get rid of that first 15 minutes and he just goes on a killing spree because he's mad. <laughs> It's not the same movie. They killed his fucking dog. <laughs> and you are on board. He can do whatever he wants. Now, you're making a, vi a video game about this. You can either do the David Cage style, heavy rain style thing where it's like, okay, you are going through the motions. You have control of it. You are with your wife. You know, she's sick. She gives you the dog. All the stuff, like everything that happens in that movie, you can play as a video game. And that could be great. And then once you get to the gunplay, then it's, it's great. But is that... Is that what you want? Is that the game you want to be? Maybe you'll, you you want to get to the action faster. So you, instead of that, you can do a cutscene that's equivalent of the first you know 15 minutes mm -hmm. of that movie where you see him and where it's told through film language. But what it does is it, it moves through it a little bit faster. It's a little bit more efficient. It's telling it to audiences in a, in a language they understand. And then you now he's pissed. And now the game begins and all that pent up emotion and energy now you are unleashing it on the game and now you're in control i can actually see it both ways and i think that just because you're using a cutscene in that scenario doesn't make it lesser of a design it, it makes it 
if you're doing it right, it can make it intentional that like, okay, oh man, I'm so mad. Let me get into this game. Let me play it. And then boom, now you go, you play the game now. And that could actually work to its benefit. I'm curious, I, you know, as you're talking about that, the, my mind immediately goes right back to Red Dead Redemption. And like, I think part of the reason that John Marston's death at the end of that game to me feels so tragic is because once you finish the game, you know, once you catch up to Dutch and he, and he dies, you, you go back to the farm with your child and they have you using all the same mechanics you learned through the game, like riding the horse, shooting the gun, all that stuff. But you're now teaching your son the, you know, how to do that stuff. And to me, that's like, you know, they found a way to make developing the relationship with your son part of the gameplay and then it makes the moment when John Marston dies like that much more impactful. So that I totally get what you're saying. Like you can you can sort of shortcut that with the use of a cutscene. But that's immediately where my mind goes. Like there there could be ways to, you know, in the John Wick example, like maybe not go through the whole thing of the wife being sick and all that. But you know, you could have moments where you like play. You know, here here's the mechanic for for throwing a grenade. But we're going to have you throwing, you know, play fetch with your dog and you're going to throw the ball for your dog for a little bit. And then that comes up later as the the mechanic for throwing grenades, you know, and, and it you're, you're teaching the game mechanics, but also developing that relationship so that when the dog dies, it, you know, it impacts you. I don't know. I just I think about I think okay, about stuff I mean, like that, that's a, that's totally valid. And I that's exactly my heavy rain example. Like th that's one of the two ways you can do it. You can do exactly that. And that's what heavy rain does. They that lot or um. Yeah, right. You, you're going through mundane chores. Mm -hmm. You're opening drawers. You're making breakfast or whatever. It's the same thing you're going to end up doing later. Now, the question though is, is that the game you want to make? Like, let's say I have this amazing mechanic for an action game. I have this great hook that, like, this is going to be like so much fun to play. Oh, hey, look, we're going to make it. It'd be awesome for a John Wick game because you're going to be dispatching guys. It's going to be so much fun. Let's do what. Let's you know, be true to it. Let's build it. Now, is it right for that game? to do the slow, methodical, heavy rain style build up to it. Because I don't know if it would be. Typically, we close this out by asking, you know, how can the industry improve? I feel like we've been kind of, <laughs> we've kind of been dancing around this question for a few minutes now. But, but Danish, how, how can the industry improve in the way that it, that it implements cutscenes? Or are, are we there? Are we, are we perfect where we're at right now? I mean, I, like, like Jared was talking about God of War, like it's, really hard to find any fault with that it was just so expertly done that if that's where we stay then i'm i'd be happy with that but i do think we are going to keep going in that direction nothing is going to be nothing static forever like people are going to come up with interesting new ways to do it uh that we haven't thought of before and technology like you know i think it would have been impossible to do a no camera cut game five years ago, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So even technology is helping artists access more tools to tell these stories in interesting ways. And I mean, we don't have time for it, but the whole VR oh, discussion, no. like that just blows the oh, doors well, let, wide let, open. No, let's make right? some time for this. I know I'm kind of like trying to bring the episode okay. to a close, but VR is, is a is a great example, I think, of where these rules are going to have to be reimagined for for things like cutscenes. But yes, give me your, tell me your ideas on, on VR and how cutscenes will be implemented there. It's really interesting. I mean, I think we're still so early with how to convey narrative in VR because for a while it was like there was lessons learned early on. Okay, well, by necessity, you cannot take the camera away from the person. Like you will, it will cause uh, nausea, you know, if you do that. So all automatically tons of techniques went out the window. 
okay, so now we're locked into this thing purely by necessity of the technology. You have to have full control always. Uh, the camera cannot be disconnected from what you are looking at. So now you're suddenly, the way we've gone, uh, the industry has gone is like, okay, now we're going to make sort of like Half-Life style uh, cutscenes where things are playing out around you and you never stop moving around or talking or looking. And then there's games, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, but there's that one game that came out that was basically an interactive dinner theater, you know, where like you wander around this mm -hmm. house and it's like a mystery and like it, the whole thing takes place over 90 minutes and it's like you just go from place to place and you play through it again and again. That's That couldn't really have been done in the same way before. So there are new things coming out of this. I think it's really early to say like what those rules are now. People are still figuring it out, but it's really exciting. Yeah, I, I love the idea of VR, mostly just because it's like, it's the Wild West and all of these rules that have existed for so long in game design are going to have to be reimagined in, in interesting ways just because of the nature of the player's agency in that setting. I'm glad we, I'm glad we took that little, that little detour because I think VR and cutscenes are going to have um, an interesting road ahead of them if, if VR continues to be a, a, you know, a good place for playing video games or interactive entertainment. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. Like I, right now, I can't think of any other way to do it than this play idea of it mm -hmm. playing out around you. Like um, I'm thinking of like that car scene in uh, Children of Men where they're being attacked and the camera's just oh, on yeah. a swivel, like going around the interior of this car. Like that's where my head goes. I can't think of any other way to do it. But again, it's exciting because we're still so early. People are going to yeah. figure it out. Classic, classic scene, classic movie. Good reference. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jared. Yeah. So, how can how can um, how can the game industry improve in the way that they implement cutscenes in in your mind? Well, it's it's great because we're in a spot with technology now where you really can do almost anything you you can imagine. And I just don't want designers or developers to feel restricted by the language of film. I think that there's just so many neat and interesting ways to tell a story that only video games can do but it's it's really hard you know it's it is difficult to do that it, it's probably very resource intensive but if we are talking about something where the primary focus is uh, a narrative I, I really hope that designers look at that and and try to figure out ways other than traditional cutscenes like we would you know see from a, of a movie mm -hmm. uh, be implemented and make that a part of the game I, I would. I'm interested to see what happens in The Last of Us Two. The Last of Us had a fair amount of cutscenes. There was really good interactions and storytelling outside of that as well. But I, I hope they do something a little different, be getting creative with it, and just just reimagine the ways that narratives can be told. One of the ways that games are getting better and better at conveying narrative is through the environment. And big examples are in, uh, the game Inside by Play Dead. I was thinking about that. That whole game is just like the what you're the, the levels you're going through as you're like platforming through them. There's so much story being told in the background. It's absolutely phenomenal, and uh, that might be like the kind of be the best way to do it. Maybe you know, um, a division is actually another great example. I didn't play Division Two, but Division One started out with I thought absolutely phenomenal like two minute cutscene about this you know virus or this mm -hmm. disaster. And then now you're you're let loose in this kind of apocalyptic New York City, and um, all of everything that you were seeing around you was telling you a story about the trash, the the kind of closed down malls, the 
it's you know snowing and all this stuff. It's it's just incredible storytelling through the environment, and I think that's going to get because of our again technology and fidelity that we create these worlds in now. That is not not going to stop. It's going to be in so much as we told through environments. And this is where I always sound like a like I'm on drugs is at the end of the episodes when I'm like when I'm talking like a thousand years in the future. I I think that as we develop more nuanced language in video games, we will see fewer and fewer cutscenes. Um, I, I think that that will stop being the way that that narrative is delivered in video games. It's not something I think you can snap your fingers and make go away because I think it is like this iterative process and it is reliant on technology and, and like the, you know, the past advancements in, in video game narrative delivery uh, over time. But I think that in like the ideal and, and I'm using like this sort of like philosophical idea of ideal, like I think in the ideal video game, it will not rely on that style of narrative delivery to tell a story. It will be something that is more is more tied to the mechanics of the game and, and agency will, will remain with the player the entire time. So I, I don't know. I mean, again, this is where I feel like I'm I'm always on drugs. But but when I think about like you know this like <laughs> a more amorphous glowing blob of the perfect video game in in the far distant future, this is this is where I think game design is headed. And I could be I could be totally wrong. I mean, maybe you know I, I'm sure there are still plenty of people who who really really love cutscenes and love that style of story delivery. And, you know, as as it sounds like the the two of you are you know here on this podcast. So I, I could be. I could be completely wrong, but that's where that's where my head is at on on this whole discussion. I think my my final thought would be something. So I I like them. I appreciate what they can do. I it's not my favorite thing. So like, if we suddenly lived in a world you're describing, I think that actually would be awesome. I I, I have zero problem with that. My thinking is more like, it sounds almost as if you are thinking of it in terms of a linear evolution, and that we don't need FMV anymore because now we can do things in engine. Okay, we don't need cutscenes anymore because now we're doing things in, in this better mm -hmm. way, where it's like pixel art all the way to you know super high res models. But in in actuality, it's it's a tree. It's like we did not stop making pixel art games because that still has uh, a, a value to it. And so, in the same way, I think in the future we will see games uh, that have no cutscenes that do everything like you know even if it's God of War or whatever or beyond that. And we still will have her story, which is FMV video on a computer screen that you're mm -hmm. clicking through video files, because that is the best way to tell that story. And so it's just tools that you have access to. And I think we're, and that's awesome, actually, just that we're never losing anything. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not losing pixel art. We're not losing anything. We're just, we're just gaining things. And so a thousand years in the future, we're going to have an enormously wide array of ways to tell stories and the ways to, to make games. It's well said. <laughs> it, it is very well put. And, and. The, this is why we have like actual game devs on our show to help rein in rein in my crazy. <laughs> I I will say though I I really appreciate you making the hard stance. Uh, no, I, like I often I very often regret them, and I'm sure ten minutes after we turn off this recording, I will be like, dang, I sounded like an idiot. <laughs> All right. If you have any questions or comments about cutscenes, and I'm sure there are some people out there with some very strong thoughts on this, please. Send us an email. Podcast at gbfeature.com is where you can reach us or you can connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. I'm also going to throw this out there again. Uh, we are still doing the book giveaway for the psychology of Zelda. We have one book left 
We're about to read some feedback from a listener who's going to be getting the first copy of the book. But you have until May 24th to uh, to reach out to us, and uh, we'll be selecting the the second person to receive a copy of The Psychology of Zelda from a friend of the show, Dr. Anthony Bean. Listeners can either respond to our prompt from last episode, which is just your favorite karma or morality system from a, uh, a video game, and tell us why, and you can reach out to us at you know, at the email address I listed, podcast at gbfeature.com. Or you can also just reach out to us on Twitter at gbfeature and just let us know what your favorite system was. Or uh, we got to make this up on the fly, Jared. What, what do we want people to do from this episode? What, what, what can people tell us about cutscenes to, to earn a book? Mm, I'd like to know what like, people's favorite cutscenes are from which games and, and the feeling that they got from that. Like I described with Metal Gear Solid, that was the first time I felt like games could be something different. Uh, or, or or could tell bigger stories. Can, um, can I tell so you my favorite? Like, what's that? My favorite was um, Final Fantasy VII when Sephiroth comes down from the sky and kills Aerith. Oh my gosh, dude! Spoiler. Well, the, come on. The game is twenty. It. It's twenty years old now. The game's twenty years old now. If you don't know, that, if you don't know that, that's what happens. Stop making me face my own mortality. Even at the time, dude, that was the first. That was one of the first times where I was like, oh my god, you can kill a, like a main character in the in a video game. Yeah, oh, I mean that that, like, that 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 made me feel things. So I, I'd like to just absolutely, get some feedback absolutely. on what, still, what people's favorite cutscenes. I still hear the Eris theme song, and I and it like almost makes me tear up. Like one time I was at a <laughs> all right. Here's a story I don't think I've brought up on the show before. I was at a Best Buy one time, and um, back when Best Buys still had music sections, I don't know if they still do or not. But some dude just like randomly next to me in the aisle just starts playing her theme on the piano, and I was like. Dude, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? I'm, I'm not a Best Buy with my family. I'm trying to shop for DVDs here. Why are you making me cry? <laughs> That's good. Do you, got, do you have one that sticks out in your mind, Danish? My favorite cutscene of all time is the intro to Shadow of the Colossus. This long, kind of no dialogue scene of this guy going on this treacherous journey with his horse, and it, you don't know what he's doing, and then finally he lays this woman on this table. And it's just the music, the cinematography, the lighting, everything is just phenomenal. I mean, the, the remake that came out last year, amazing. Uh, so that's probably my favorite. And it's just, it's an introduction to the world. It sets the tone that you're going to be living in for, you know, the yeah. next however many hours. So that's probably one of my favorites. Yeah, no, great example. Yeah. So like I said, um, it, reach out to us with your feedback about karma and morality systems or reach out to us with uh, your favorite cutscene from a video game. And uh, on May 24th, we will be picking randomly from all the feedback we hear someone to receive another copy of The Psychology of Zelda. Jared, why don't you uh, read us some, uh, some feedback we got? We have a listener by the name of Megan R. She wrote in to us talking about uh, answering what her favorite morality system was. And she said, it would have to be Mass Effect. There are many games that I have played with these systems, with Fable, Dragon Age, you know the ones. Uh, but there's something that ran deep for me in Mass Effect. I like the morality system because I found it challenging and it challenged my own personal people-pleasing aspects. I was normally all Paragon and to face the consequences of difficult decisions really had an effect on me. When I talk to clients who game about what games teach them about themselves and their values, I always get some interesting responses. I know for myself it lights up my own challenges on difficult decisions and what I am willing to sacrifice for the good of others and myself and the galaxy. I hope this answers your question for episode 45. Thank you, Megan, for writing yeah, in. And you, I, I think that's cool. I'm, I'm interested what she does um, where she can, she talks to her clients um, and asks them those questions because 
yeah, being able to, I, I think we brought up, you know, self-reflection is an interesting concept when you're asking people to make those decisions in, in games like that. And I think Mass Effect, you know, for, for all the, the issues I had with Mass Effect, as we were discussing in that episode, I think Mass Effect is a game where the morality system really, really makes sense. And it might not have been the, the perfect implementation of it, but with the promise of Mass Effect 1, right, they were saying um, every decision you make will, will have an impact in, in the later games. And in that way, you know, I think karma and morality systems are designed to to give you that sense that your decisions have importance in the future. So in Mass Effect, it, it totally makes sense to have a system like that in that game. So it, you know, it's no surprise to me that it resonates so strongly with people and, and, res and obviously resonates with Megan here. So Megan, thank you so much for, uh, for writing in and uh, we will be reaching out if we haven't done so already. Again, you can always send your emails to us at podcast at gbfeature.com or reach out to us at gbfeature on Twitter. That's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I want to thank our guest, Danish Syed. Danish, thank you so much for being here, man. Where, where can people find your work? How can they keep up with you? Thank you. This has been so much fun. An awesome discussion. Um, you can catch me on Twitter at, at underscore Danish Syed. Our podcast is Someone Should Make This. You can find that on iTunes or any podcast thing, um, Spotify. And uh, yeah, just Twitter is probably the best way to do it. I'm, I'm on there talking about games, talking about random stuff. Yeah. And as a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and you want to help us out, head over to our iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast. This is Rad on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. I'm at Jared Bruner. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, bye, guys. Bye.